You know something weird I learned? Uh, so I discovered this morning that I was allergic to oysters um, because I made stir fry. I made stir fry with oyster sauce two nights ago, and yesterday I woke up and my lips were really swollen and chapped, and I thought, huh, I shouldn't sleep with the window open. It must have been really dry in here last night. <laughs> and I woke up this morning and it was worse, and I said, oh, I'm allergic to something. Um, yeah. I mean, you're been, lucky that it wasn't anaphylactic. That is true. Um, but I've been applying chapstick every 30 minutes all day. <laughs> and the, I don't know where it's going, but that is not one of the symptoms I expected of an allergic reaction. Weird. Mm -hmm. So, how has the last two weeks been? How's the pandemic treating you? Uh, I think the that the pandemic, well, so far, it's it's uh, in the Midwest at least. We're slowly seeing a rise in cases. Uh, I learned yesterday that thirty percent of all American deaths due to the nineteen eighteen Spanish flu pandemic occurred in October of nineteen eighteen. Um, that a combination of you know, various factors we probably don't fully understand, but things like, uh, you know, it's flu season, right? People go inside, people, you know, uh, see each other for the holidays, whatever. Um, yeah. So as we record this, it is September 29th. I am very anxious for uh, what's going to happen come October, because I think it will be really bad. And so if you were to, like, line up the, the, the you know, air quotes, start dates of the pandemic, it would be this October, not in October a year from now? Uh, that is a good question. I have not done that. But I know that the flu pandemic was Either 1918. Both of those are very concerning, because if it's this yes. October, we might be going into a bad month. But if it's in October a year from now, well, let's just cross our fingers that our science is better. Yes. Which it is. Um, but it is better. But it's not perfect. No. And so I am apprehensive that going into flu season, uh, it's going to be rather bad. Yeah. I, I'm also struggling a little bit because I, you know, weeks ago made a bunch of social plans for the month of October. I am doing mm. something every weekend in October. Uh, I am seeing somebody. And, you know, individually, I think I would be comfortable with all of them. But I, it kind of hit me yesterday, or the day before, that I have a social event planned every weekend in October. Taken together, it's kind of it could be concerning. Yes, I'm, I'm rather concerned. Uh, and I don't know how to politely say, I invited you over for dinner, but actually I don't want you to come. I mean, from what I've heard from people, and I think just the general feel that I'm getting, like, most people, especially I imagine the people that you're going to be having over, are very understanding. If you're like, hey, yes. since we made these plans, the situation in the world has changed. Right. But I, I feel a little difficult saying that because so far the situation in the world hasn't changed. But I suspect that by the time the plans come around, the situation will have changed and I'll be, you know, I will have wished I had canceled now. Yeah. Uh, well, or you can also try and change it and be like, hey, are, like, are these people who are local to you or are they driving from far away? No. Um, so, like, I'm going home for family pictures on Sunday. Uh, yeah. I am having people drive across the state to come for a fancy dinner on mm. Thursday and on next week, Saturday, you know. Some various yeah. things that... So, like, yeah, it, those are those are harder to transition to. If someone's local, if you're like, okay, let's just go for a hike or something. Uh, right. Which you could still try to do, transition it to something that is safer. Yes. Um, so, I don't know what the future holds, but I'm apprehensive. Yeah. I think it's a good way to sum that up. How about you? What's life look like over there? Stuff has changed. So, I think, like, two days after we recorded last, my area got hit with a stay-at-home order. 
Now, in terms of how it's impacted my university, we have exemptions for class um, or, you know, to go to work or religious activities or, you know, to get food or medical stuff. So really, they're just cracking down on social interaction, which I understand because from my university's own contact tracing, they have found that most of the spread on campus and surrounding campus has not been from like huge parties, which were already, you know, illegal. It's been from small group interactions, like, you know, four to 10 people hanging out and being like, oh, we're a small group, we'll take our masks off. And that's where most of our uh, infections have been coming from and our numbers were going up. But since this stay at home order, which was scheduled for two weeks, uh, it should end here pretty soon, but they, you know, could, re you know, could extend it, who knows. Um, but our numbers have been going down since then, which is good. Also, mm -hmm. I, I don't have told you this yet, James, but I was, I had a sore throat a couple days ago and was tired. And so I, we have to do these like self assessments every day. And so I failed my self assessment and, mm. you know, intentionally, I knew I would fail it. I, you know, right. And so then scheduled the COVID test. So I had a COVID test on Monday and I'm still waiting for the results. So that's entirely possible. I could get my results while we're recording. Which has been inconvenient, but like, you know, it's what it is. I'm, I'd, I'd rather know. Right. Um, and hopefully most tests come back negative. Yeah. Well, yeah, especially, you know, on campus we've had cumulatively, I think, less than 50 cases the whole semester. And I don't think really ever more than 30 active at a time on campus. That's really impressive. That's university-owned housing. Re right next to campus and non-university-owned housing, the numbers have been a bit higher. That's true. <laughs> and, the, you know, it wasn't a super bad sore throat, and I don't really feel it anymore. You won't, you, you won't be able to hear it. I've just been pretty tired the past few days. Um, and so if it wasn't a pandemic, I would have thought nothing of it. But I'm just, right, right. you know, trying to mm -hmm. do things the safe way. Absolutely. Some interesting uh, predictions that I heard. I've heard people say that this flu season is going to be very bad because it's in the midst of a pandemic. And so that's more, you know, the hospital system is already stretched to its limit by the yearly flu and people who get really bad cases of the flu and have to get, you know, IV fluids. And they need similar and they need similar treatment to COVID-19 because it's respiratory distress a lot of the time. Right, right. And so between the two of those that you're going to see an overwhelming of the healthcare system that will make both the flu and the pandemic worse. I've also heard people predicting that because of pandemic precautions, we're going to have a very mild flu season. Yeah, that's what I mean. That's what I'm hoping. I, I, I've, I've heard both of those things. And like, I'm like, hopefully, you know, people are going to be washing their hands more and staying inside more and like wearing masks, which we, you know, at least in the United States, never really do during flu season. Right. I wouldn't be surprised if there were less like total infections of the flu. But if of the people who got it and got it bad, the mortality rate was higher. Hmm. That like, like, you know, say in a normal year, um, a thousand people get the flu really bad, right? Mm -hmm. But only a hundred, these are made up numbers, only a hundred of them die, right? Yep. Now, I think maybe this year, maybe only 500 people would get the flu really, really bad. But maybe a hundred of them would still die. Same number, but that would be double the mortality rate, or maybe 200 of them would die, even right. with less, in fact, even, even with less total super severe cases. I'm not an That's epidemiologist, true. I'm not a doctor, I don't know, but I, I could see something like that happening, where our total numbers yeah. are less, but our deaths are higher. Yeah, I remember us talking last week about how 
at the beginning of the pandemic in March, we had very little understanding of how this worked, how to be safe, what precautions to take, and that it was so difficult to make decisions and we all felt so afraid because we had no information. And yeah. now that we're talking about this, I see ourselves in the same position looking forward over the next three months of, of epidemiology, I suppose. I have no idea what, what universities are gonna do in the winter. Now my university has been pretty good, I mean, cause we've been pretty much locked down and even before that, uh, they've pretty much just been like, hey, this really sucks guys, but almost all university programming, like not classes, but like, you know, events are, they're all online. You know, it sucks, it's awful, you won't be able to meet people easily, but this is what we gotta do. Um, but I know that some other, uh, especially smaller universities uh, and colleges where the numbers aren't as high, and so or like the risk isn't as high just because they're a smaller institution, they've been yeah. having a, a lot more outdoor activities and things like that. And I think especially for freshmen who are trying to somehow make friends during this, um, and you know, for, for older uh, students as well, it's just going to be really hard when it's bitter cold outside. Yes. And I, I think that you could see a lot more violation of policy if the same policies are kept in place. Yeah. So who knows what the next uh, three months will hold for us in terms of disease. So I think what we're really, the core of what we're talking about today, which we're going to come at from multiple lenses, is what you personally believe, whether it's, you know, about morals or religion, just your worldview of how the world should be. Yes. How much of that should be rules for yourself to strive for, and how much of that should be holding everyone on earth accountable to those standards? Yeah, that's a good point. Uh, that's a good way to put it. I think this question is on our minds recently because uh, President Donald Trump has nominated Amy Cohen Barrett to the Supreme Court a week after Ruth Bader Ginsburg's death. Certainly a topical instance of this. Yes, and Amy Cohen Barrett has been a federal, only been a federal judge for three years. She was nominated by President Trump at the beginning of his term. And so we don't know a lot about her judicial activity because there hasn't been a lot of judicial activity. She's only been here for three years now that she's being nominated to the Supreme Court. But she's been a Notre Dame law professor for, you know, a few dozen years. And so from that background, we can pull apart uh, some of her beliefs. For example, she argued that when Chief Justice Roberts saved the Affordable Care Act in 2012, I believe, from being ruled unconstitutional, uh, she was opposed to that because she thought that uh, Chief Justice Roberts argued, uh, expanded the law to include things that it had not said. And, you know, one of the implications of this is that if the if she is uh, confirmed to the Supreme Court before the election, the Supreme Court is scheduled to hear a challenge to the legality of Obamacare in November, and she could potentially rule the Affordable Care Act unconstitutional, removing health care from 12 point, 21, 21 million low-income Americans in the midst of a pandemic. During a pandemic. Right. And so that is an example of her personal political beliefs severely impacting other people because she's doing what she thinks is right. I think it is a legal, I think it is a valid legal opinion to say the Supreme Court should not make legislation, it should not change Congress's legislation to make it more palatable to the Constitution if Congress passes an unconstitutional version of the Affordable Care Act, strike it down and make them do it again. But that being said, are you allowed to let your personal legal philosophy remove health care from 
almost 10%, uh, maybe 7% of Americans during the midst of a pandemic. Yeah, and that, I mean, that brings up a whole interesting question of what role do, you know, what role should judges play? You know, should they be completely concerned with the letter of the law, which is generally what the job description is considered to be, or especially given circumstances just in general, do judges have to consider the kind of climate in which they are making decisions that, you know, in a vacuum, you could look at something and be like, yes, to the letter of the law, this is what we should do. But is it sometimes more important? Or do they have the right to sometimes be like, hey, maybe an, an argument can be made for why doing one thing is following the letter of the law. But given the current context, whether it be, you know, political or, you know, health, should a different decision be made? Yeah. Uh, I think a lot of Americans are coming to realize that applying the law and doing justice are not the same thing. Yeah. Especially, I'm thinking particularly of the, the indictment against the police officers who killed Breonna Taylor back in March. Of the three police officers who broke down the door to her house in the middle of the night and shot her, only one of them was charged, and he, the crimes he committed were for all the bullets that missed her, that did not kill Breonna Taylor. And to be honest, I don't like it. I think it's unjust. I think it's unfair. Yeah, no, it, it, it feels awful. But also, you know, there are like, from a legal perspective, especially, you know, it is somewhat, the, the you know, it is not certain, uh, you know, whether they announce themselves or announce themselves well enough. And there's conflating witness, you know, there's conflicting right. witness testimonies. But if, which so far, like, the current uh, legal system has taken into account that, that the police did announce themselves uh, as much as they should have, there isn't really a legal precedent to charge him for more. Because no. if they announce themselves, they were fired at, of course they're going to fire back. Yes, and it's a unique situation where both parties uh, have taken the defense that they use lethal force in self-defense. And both parties, in this case, from a legal perspective, are probably right. I absolutely do not think that brings justice. And I think, I think not even just from a legal perspective, I think from a perspective of reality, in yeah. both parties' minds, they were acting in self-defense. Yes. I, I think that, you know, often we can see violence erupt from miscommunication um, yeah. and a misunderstanding of the situation. I fully believe, like, I, I don't believe that, you know, the officers, like, they weren't out for blood. I think that they were... They, they fully thought that their life was in danger and they were acting in self-defense. Absolutely. I mean, the ballistics showed they accident... One of the officers accidentally shot another one of the officers. It was a very confusing situation. It's 3 a.m., there's guns going off, you're in the dark house, you know. Well, do we know that for sure, or was it just not confirmed whether the bullet came from the boyfriend's gun? I have seen indications that ballistics uh, put the round that hit one of the police officers in the ankle came from a police officer's gun. Uh, that specific um, uh, detail is is evolving, like, currently. Yes, um, yes. And that I, the last I read about it, it was that it was uncertain where it had come yes. from. Right. Um, all that is to say, uh, you know, should you apply your personal uh, perspectives? Uh, should you follow the letter of the law? Should you work for justice? What is the inner intersection of personal beliefs and civic duties? Right. Yeah. Obviously, the the elephant, the elephant in the room, no pun intended, is abortion. Right. Yeah. 
historically was, and even even uh, Trump's uh, nominee Amy Barrett has said has said historically on the record that she don't th she doesn't think that, that that it would ever be fully overturned. Now, issues of where funding would come from, or how hard it would be to access, or what the specifics of you know getting an abortion in America would look like, that's all you know up to change. But she's on the record said in the past that she doesn't think that you know the right to abortion uh, would change. However. Those statements were made before the last two appointments to the Supreme Court, mm -hmm. which make it much more likely that it uh, actually could be changed. Absolutely. I mean, sh she's a Notre Dame law professor. She's a very conservative Catholic. And if she is going to come onto the court with a perspective of, uh, I'm going to enact what I see as justice, what I think is correct, even if it means overturning precedent, which, to be fair, on the Supreme Court, she is allowed to overturn precedent. Yeah. You know, how should she weigh her personal moral convictions against uh, what she is allowed to impose on other people? Yeah. And she has stated, from what I've read, she, uh, um, her general legal philosophy it does seem to be letter of the law. That, that uh, her, at least from what she said, and people will say things different from how they act, I'm not saying that it's, it's gospel, but I think, you know, you have to consider what someone, what someone says that they're going to do. Um, her general president has, has seemed to be sticking to trying to be a, an impartial judge and, and not try to, to change things for a moral benefit or, or in her own moral beliefs. Right. Now, I think most, you know, most people or most judges would say that because it's what is expected of them. That being said... I'm a fairly liberal guy, as you know, um, but if I were on the Supreme Court, I would likely rule that uh, unborn children, to some extent, have things that make them human, and they should have rights to not be killed. I don't know whether that means I would uphold a ban on third trimester abortions. You know, obviously the science is constantly evolving and unclear. Uh, some some scientists argue that there are signs of consciousness in the fetus as early as six to eight weeks, which is pretty shockingly early. There's a scientific question here, but then there's also a moral question. Because if you want to say signs of consciousness, I could probably make a pretty dang convincing argument that there's signs of consciousness in a pig or in a raven. That's true. You know, like signs of consciousness. One sign of consciousness is being able to recognize yourself in the mirror. One is, you know, being able to do certain level of like, problem solving and manipulation involving like a theory of mind. So mm -hmm. there's a thought of how much consciousness is, is a level where this entity has a level of its own, you know, it, it rights or a right to, to life. And, yes. you know, as much as I think we would like to say, and this is a bit of a tangent, you know, this discussion mm -hmm. isn't about abortion, but I think as much as we as a society would like to say, oh, if something is conscious, it should be protected. We have not demonstrated that that is what we believe. You know, if no. we... Are going no. to factory farm meat we can't pretend that anything with a semblance of consciousness uh, deserves life or a life without pain certainly uh and so we are faced with this question of if i were a supreme court justice would i would i be uh you know right in overturning roe versus wade because my personal convictions would go against what the country's legal precedent is how much can i impose my personal moral beliefs onto the 350 million Americans who I write law for. Yeah. Well, and especially in the case of, of, of Amy Barrett, she's a deeply religious person from mm -hmm. the accounts that I have seen. Um, yes. You know, she's Catholic. Uh, she's a member of 
a it, it, it's hard to describe, but a group called the People of Praise, which is, uh, they've self-described themselves, I believe, as kind of an intentional community. Um, they're not a church, they're just kind of a, a group of people who uh, seem to meet weekly and try to support each other. Um, and many things about them seem to be good. They are a group of people who, um, out, you know, that are somewhat multi-denominational, they're mostly Catholic, but there are some other denominations in there who try to support each other and um, watch out for each other and help each other if, you know, one member is, say, facing economic hardship. Um, and so there's a lot of things that, like, you know, when I've read about this this group, that it's like, oh, like, yeah, I can get behind that. But some of their kind of uh, more social uh, norms and values are a bit more edgy for me. Uh, they, you know, they, they teach that... Uh, like in a marriage, hey, that a marriage is exclu you know, is between a man and a woman, full stop, yeah. which I disagree with. A natural um, born man and woman at that, most likely. Oh, I, I can't. I, I would imagine that that idea isn't even on the table. Um, right. But also that in a marriage, a uh, the man in the marriage is 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 the head, and that a woman should be subservient to him, yes. which is I don't like that. That makes me deeply uncomfortable. They even have a formal system for that. Everyone, every member of their group has someone like who is their head, is what they call it. Um, and that person is, is, is mostly considered a mentor, someone you go to for advice or is there to kind of correct you if it seems like your path is strayed. Um, and for, for men, this mentor is often another, sometimes older, more senior man. Uh, and for unmarried uh, women, it's often a, 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 you know, a woman with lots of knowledge. But if a woman is married, her head becomes her husband which seems mm -hmm. problematic in my mind. If, if you want to have someone who is a confidant that you can go to to receive advice, it seems like there's a conflict of interest if you're in a romantic relationship with someone to have the person telling you what the right thing to do also being a party of that relationship. Certainly. Especially when it is exclusively the man telling the woman what the advice or what the correction should be. Absolutely. I think that's very problematic. I guess going back up to our higher level topic, there's this question of how much can you impose the way you want to live your life, the way you think is moral, the way you think is right on other people. And I think this is a question that has been a part of at least the Christian movement from its earliest days. I was just listening to a podcast about the book of Acts. It opens with all of the disciples are gathered together learning from Jesus about the kingdom, and one of them asks, hey, is now the time we're going to restore the kingdom of Israel? And it's not clear whether they mean in a philosophical sense that is a spiritual revival of the kingdom of Israel, uh, or if they mean, let's grab swords and start killing Romans, <laughs> you know? Uh, and so this, this thought of how much are we allowed to enforce our religious expectations on the civic culture around us has been baked into Christianity from the very beginning. And I think it's something that other Abrahamic religions also have on, on the plate. Uh, for example, yeah. in Islam, the Prophet Muhammad was not just a religious leader, but also a political and military leader. And so yeah. Yeah. Uh, there, there really is no separation of church and state because, you know, Muhammad, the founder of the religion, was the church and the state. Yeah. Or early on, early on, the Catholic Church had tremendous political and financial power. Oh, absolutely. Uh, they, I mean, the Pope crowned all the kings in Europe, right? Yeah. Uh, and so in that sense, the church and the state are one. And so for much, so for, you know, the history of the Islamic world, the history of early Europe, 
there really was no question of how do you separate uh, private moral and religious convictions from civil leadership um, because they're one and the same, right? You, yeah. There is no separation. And even outside of the context, uh, you know, in a modern context and even outside of, of thinking about religion, just thinking about, you know, even if you're not religious, everyone has an idea of what is moral or what is right and how they think that the world should should be, you know, how, how, how things should be run. Um, and some of those are, you know, more pragmatic things of like, you know, it, it, there, you can make a moral case, but like, oh, what your stance on like financial policy is, like that's, you know, you got to abstract a few times to get to morality. Or traffic law. Yeah, a lot of things, a lot of, you know, even not thinking about religion in, you know, America and in our, even in our laws, there are a lot of things that are based on, on morals, not based on, on, on like practicality. Yes. Um, even the level of like, oh, who should pay taxes and how much? There's a level of that that is, okay, practically we need to run this country and we need a certain amount of money. But on another level, it's like, okay, you know, how do we think about, you know, society and what an individual member owes to society based off of what means that they have? And at the core of that is a moral question, not one of pragmatism. Absolutely. So while I, in the course of this conversation, might often advocate that people keep their morals and keep their religion out of other people's lives, I won't pretend for a second that that is a hard and fast rule or that a society can possibly function on that. Because if you abstract it enough, you can say, well, murder is really a moral thing. Yeah. And I fully believe you shouldn't be able to murder someone. Right. Uh, and I think it's also important to remember that there isn't some sort of purely neutral, secular middle ground here, right? We make rules like don't murder, don't... Uh, for example, adultery could be illegal. We could say that, even not from a religious perspective, but let's say from a moral perspective. I think everyone in America agrees adultery is wrong. You shouldn't cheat on your wife. You shouldn't cheat on your husband. One of the worst things you can do. Absolutely, but we're not going to make it illegal. No. Right. Now we've set things in place in legal systems where, you know, through the divorce process or, you know, th there are certain aspects of our law that apply to that of like, okay, if you're going to like, you know, get a divorce from someone and, you know, some assets are going to be separated, there is a different, you know, it, it matters why it's happening. Absolutely. And so, you know, you can see there baked into our secular legal culture, there's an understanding that cheating is wrong. You know, you're not going to give custody of the kids to the cheater. That's not something that's that's likely to happen. Well, that, there's a whole issue there of that almost no matter what the circumstances, it's going to go to the woman, but... That, that's true. Um, but, but you know, as just as an example, I think that we all, as a society, agree adultery is wrong. But we're not going to make it illegal, even if someone with personal moral convict convictions might say that adultery is morally wrong and should be punished by the state legally. Yeah. And so it's not like there's some neutral... There are neutral things that everybody agrees are just wrong. Some people don't think adultery is that big of a deal. A marriage is just an agreement you make, and if you want to break your word, that's your private word, and that's not something the government should be involved in. Yeah. But, uh, you know, to find another example um, where I think we have swung the other way, an age of consent, right? Yes. You know, I am all about consent, and I think having an age of consent in a country is deeply important because, you know, someone who is a child is not mentally capable of, of giving consent to sex. There's pragmatism in there, but more of that is about morals. Yes. And, and about thinking that, hey, people need a choice in this, and when they are young, that is something that their brain is not ready for. They cannot make that decision. Absolutely. 
And I'm, I'm glad we've swung the other way, but I think that's an instance of where we have, where we've decided, hey, morally, this is something we need to set in law. Yes. And so when we're having this, when we have a discussion about what are we going to mandate from personal morals, I think it is important to remember that everything that is legally mandated, I think, is done so because of some collective understanding of what morals are. And so if Amy Cohen Barrett decides that she's going to make abortion illegal, it's not that she's imposed, it is that she's imposing her personal morals onto the law. But all laws are that. It's just it happens to be a case where many people disagree with her. Um, yeah. Right. Well, and then there's a thought of where is the role, uh, like, how do we democratize, how do we democratize morality? Yes. And that's very hard to do when a lot of the, you know, at least um, fiery moral and political questions are those of absolutes. In my personal opinion on a lot of these things is, okay, you can have a moral compass for yourself, but as, if you start to apply that to other people, it's where you run into issues. And I think to democratize morality, a lot of that is saying, we have some hard and fast rules, but then we have ways that different people can live how they want to live. Yes. You run into a lot of conflict when someone living a different way breaks the moral compass of someone else in a severe way, like on the issue of abortion. Absolutely. I mean, this is, this is not an issue that I have an answer to, uh, so it's a little interesting we're making a podcast about it, but I think it is good yeah. to talk about. Oh, yeah, if you're coming to this podcast for us to answer, like, if we pose a question at the start, there's a very, there's a slim chance we will answer it. Absolutely. I found myself leaning more authoritarian over the last five years in the sense that <laughs> I, I am much more willing to, you know, assert, no, what I believe morally is right, and I'm going to, I feel like I ought to impose it on other people. Well, I think this is an interesting topic for us because I think, while we agree on a lot of things, I think our general idea of how relative is morality or how absolute it is, we diverge slightly. Oh, I agree. I had a conversation the other day with my roommate's girlfriend, and she was talking about the Pledge of Allegiance for some reason. And I mentioned that as a Christian, I don't feel comfortable saying the Pledge of Allegiance because I feel like my allegiance is to, is to God and... Jesus says you can't serve two masters, and so I'm not yeah. going to pledge my allegiance with a ceremony to, to my country because my allegiance is in the kingdom of heaven and not in the kingdom of America. Yeah. And she was surprisingly taken aback, and she talked about how her father, who is a devout Christian, loves to say the Pledge of Allegiance because he's an immigrant and he worked very hard to be able to say the Pledge of Allegiance. Mm. And I think that is an excellent example of the weird overlap of personal moral compasses in a society that, that allows that common ground. Because that was an area where I feel very strongly convicted about my own beliefs on the issue. But I certainly wasn't going to tell my roommate's girlfriend's dad that he couldn't do that. And that's not just you being polite. It's that I imagine it doesn't matter to you. You don't think that her dad is, like, blaspheming. It's that you have you've both taken different approaches to that, and I think that it's, it's completely fine. Yes. You can both be Christians and both have different opinions on this, and it's not necessarily even that one of you is right. It's that for you to be a Christian, you find that not verbally pledging yourself to another cause, to another allegiance, helps you center yourself in your faith and say, hey, this is what I, this is what I stand for. But for him, he is able to stay within his faith while also acknowledging that there is something else that he owes tribute to, which is America. Yes. And, you know, you could even portray that as, you know, there's a level of allegiance and there might be a level of gratitude, especially if that's something that he's worked really hard toward. This this ability of his to, to pledge allegiance 
is a gift from God. Yes, I think that's a good way to put it. And so that is clearly an issue where even though I tend to be a little more authoritarian, I'm not going to say that what he's doing is wrong. I feel convicted not to do it. If he doesn't, I'm not going to tell him he's wrong. And, and I think something you mentioned there hits at the, at the heart of that is it doesn't affect me, right? Yeah. If he chooses to, let's say, I don't think that saying the Pledge of Allegiance is blasphemy. Uh, let's say that I did believe that. Him committing blasphemy really doesn't affect me. I might think it's wrong. I might think that he, you know, is going to face judgment for that. Um, but I don't think it's, it doesn't affect me. It doesn't change how I live my life at all. And so the role of a civic morality that is kind of a collective understanding of right and wrong that is imposed on people comes in that overlap between people, right? Yeah. And I think the, the center of the abortion debate, for example, is are, are fetuses humans? Do they have rights? And someone who is pro-choice might say, this is about the woman. This is inside of her personal sphere. This doesn't overlap with other people. We can't tell her how to live her life. Whereas someone who's pro-life would say, no. It's basically a genetically similar parasite. <laughs> right. Uh, you know, and she has the right to remove it. Someone in a pro-life camp would say, no, that is another human being. The overlap, the relationship between the mother and the child is something that society has an interest in uh, and should be allowed to regulate because the woman's decisions affect other people in society, even if it's her own child. Yeah. I think um, I will, I will I'll, I'll go for a little bit more uh, of a spicy example because, I mean, if you want to find something where I'm going to be differing from people, mm -hmm. uh, let's talk about polyamory because that came up in one of our group chats the other night. Now, polyamory, not my cup of tea. I, I am a, definitely a monogamous, right? Uh, my idea of romantic relationships is that they are between two people. Now, very specifically, those two people can be men, women, non-binary, trans, cis, whatever. But in my mind, for me, between two people. But if other people want to make polyamory work for them, like, I think a lot of times, uh, if someone's going to attempt that, it could go horribly wrong, and I think it's much more difficult than a relationship with two people. I don't really care if people do that, and I wouldn't judge them for that. I don't have a problem with it, but it's not really my thing. Yeah, yeah. But if I was talking with someone and they were like, oh, hey, yeah, oh, I'm in a polyamorous relationship with these two, three people, I'd be like, oh, okay. But if I was having a conversation with someone and they just started saying awful things about people who were polyamorous, I'd have so much more of an issue with the person talking crap even if I agreed with them about every other thing, even, even if me and this person talking crap had the exact same conceptualization of what romantic relationships should look like, I would have much more issue with them because they're talking, they're being awful towards someone else than someone who I have a different viewpoint on. I don't care if you're polyamorous. I care if you don't like people who are polyamorous. Yeah, that's a good way to sum it up. And I think that's a unique problem for our society because we have this concept that there are that there is some private life that other people don't get to dictate. Many cultures just don't have that concept, like we were talking about the Muslim Arab world or early Christian Europe or what have you. You know, in many cases, people felt like you didn't... There was no aspect of your life, you know, except maybe what's your favorite flavor of ice cream, uh, where you, you just get to say, this is what I believe, and other people don't get to tell you otherwise. Yeah. I don't think people in early early Christian Europe had ice cream, but you know what I mean. Yeah, I was just going to say, I don't, think that was, uh, I don't think they had that. But, I mean, that's really personal, you know? If you've got a favorite flavor of ice cream, you're divinely inspired. 
the Pope's not going to come out with an edict that says, God says the best flavor of ice cream is mint chocolate chip because he'd <laughs> spark a war <laughs> with you, the Habsburgs. If you disagree, you're going to hell. <laughs> moose yeah, tracks I suppose that would be the, the other extreme. Moose tracks is for the pagans. Well, and I think a, a, a pretty clear example of where we have, as a country, changed our mind is that on gay marriage. Not too long ago, it was illegal to, you know, get married, but it, it, before that, it was illegal, like, gay sex was, con was considered, like, a crime and disgusting. And we have, as a society, changed, you know, both in law and to an extent in culture relatively quickly. Yeah. In that, you know, in 20 years, we've gone from illegal, don't ever talk about it, disgusting, to in many, you know, to legal, and almost no matter who you are, it's something that is talked about. And in many circles, even in circles who don't agree with it, it's not, it's no longer this disgusting thing, this, this, this stain not to look at. It's more of a, okay, this is a, a contemporary issue. And I don't think you can make a strong case that outlawing homosexuality is anything but a moral issue. Mm -hmm. Yes. People will make cases about the structure of a household or about whether it's natural or not, but I think almost all of those arguments fall completely flat. At the heart of it, at the heart of anyone that I've ever interacted with who has a problem with homosexuality, it's always religion. Yeah. I've never talked with someone who has a problem with homosexuality where it's a pragmatic reason or something not based in religion. Yeah. And I think that hits an interesting question here. All of the all of the examples we've pulled up have been religious, social, have been social issues that religious people care about or have strong opinions about. Yeah. Um, and interestingly, many of them involve uh, sexuality and reproduction, very personal issues. And I, I think that stems, I, I would argue that stems from the deeply personal aspect of it. You know, tax policy is something that you can debate pragmatically and impassionate, unimpassionately, not passionately, uh, because tax policy isn't something that makes me feel attacked as a person. If you were to say, I don't think gay people should be married, someone who is gay says, that is me. You are against who I am, not just yeah. something I believe. Areas of, of relationships, specifically, you know, romantic ones or, or the results thereof, often going to be like it's unsurprising that that is where religion overlaps with policy mm -hmm. in that especially in the instance of marriage because historically marriage was not a legal thing it was you know either a community or a religious thing yes and that that, that has become something different now and that marriage is not as deeply enshrined in um, religion, but that's where it, 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 the concept of at least our kind of Western ideas of marriage came from. A lot of it came from Christianity, uh, to my understanding, at least. Yes. I'm just looking it up right now because I'm curious. Marriage certificates, marriage licenses have only been widely available for about 150 years. And the earliest examples are from about 1650 in the Massachusetts colony. So, I mean, just the fact that the government, the government says that you're married instead of a church saying that you're married has only been a thing for the past 150 years, which isn't very long. Yeah. And so I think people will run into the idea that for a long time, the church had a monopoly on marriage and mm -hmm. that like, that was their way of denoting relationships approved by them. Well, and that's why it's less of a thing now, but there used to be the whole kind of push for, 
oh, well, gay people, they can join in a civil union, but you can't call it marriage. Like, when right. it seems like when people who are against this, when they knew the chips were down, when they knew it was over, when they knew that, like, okay, this is going to be become legal, it seems like the last thing that they wanted to preserve wasn't preventing unions from happening, but was preventing the word marriage being applied to them. Yes. Because marriage had, had religious connotations for mm-hmm. many people. Yes. And what's what's become an issue more recently is... Are pastors allowed to officiate gay weddings if their church yeah. still thinks gay marriage isn't isn't right? And that's been an issue that's been deeply divisive for many churches. We're both part of the CRC in some capacity, mm-hmm. Christian Reformed Church, and I believe their current stance on that right now is it's uh, up to the individual churches, right? Um, it may be classes and not churches. I'm not entirely sure. Okay. It, is... it seems like generally, and I like this is one of the things I don't love about the CRC because it seems like they don't they don't really have balls in that. Um, it seems like whenever there's, like, a divisive inch issue, their first kind of um, tool is just, like, do what you want. <laughs> well, to be fair, many churches many churches who have tried to make a decision have ended up splitting over these issues. Uh, oh, yeah. I get why they do it. And to a certain extent, there's a part of me that's, like, I, I like the idea of letting people go their own different way while still being part of the collective. Like, I think, mm-hmm. you know, there's a kind of idea of democratizing morality there. Now, how much room there is for that in the church, I think, I think there's a difference between democratizing morality in government and democratizing morality inside of a single denomination of church. That, yeah. The second makes me deeply uncomfortable. Yeah. Because I think a government, especially, if, you know, talking from a Christian perspective, is our best approximation of what the kingdom should look like. It, it's, it's broken. It, so, like, I, letting it kind of ro- work different ways for different people or like letting society work different ways for different people makes more sense in that context. But if you as a church or as a denomination of church are trying to provide a consistent ideology, it gets a lot sloppier, especially when you talk about things like, you know, for, for some people, which are very divisive, like gay marriage, if you start to say, well, you can kind of do whatever, like I would prefer that the church came down and just said, yeah, gay marriage is fine, of course. But if they kind of have this loosey-goosey stance, it starts to be like, well, if it doesn't really matter which way we fall on that, why does it matter which way we fall on anything else? Right. Absolutely. Uh, And I think that desire to make all the laws clean-cut and written in stone, I think that's more of a cultural understanding that we have as modern Westerners than something that is inherent to the religion. That's my my opinion. I think that the history of morality within the Christian movement has been much more flexible to applying wisdom rather than the letter of the law. You want to work for justice, that doesn't always mean you have to follow all of the laws to the letter. Yeah. Judges and town, the elder councils of a village that you know often implemented the law in early Hebrew society we're much more flexible about saying, no, we're going to do what is just, even if it means not following the law to the letter. And that was very common, not just for the Hebrews, but all for all the societies around them. Yeah, the, the pure distillation of this concept, the, the philo- philosophical distillation, is the idea of moral relativism versus moral absolutes. Yes. Absolute morality. Yes. Um, is there one... Is anything moral... You know, as we say, capital T, true. Is it objectively, actually, for realsies, true? Is it some truth greater than the people who discover it? Right. Or have we just decided? Like, is murder actually bad, or have we just decided that it's bad? Right. 
those are questions that we are certainly not equipped to answer here in less than an hour. No, but I think that's that's the core of everything yeah. uh, that we've talked about. Mm -hmm. I don't know. Is it actually bad for gay people to, to get married, or have we just decided that it's bad? Because if it's actually bad, again, I don't think it's bad, but if, as a, you know, if it was actually bad, well, of course, Christians should, like, fight to, to make sure it stays illegal. Right. But if it's just something we, if it's something we've decided that's bad, well, then we can just make another decision. Yeah. And so, like, in my mind, the whole, I, you know, the idea that gay marriage was wrong, that's something that society decided. And so I'm glad that we seem to be changing our mind on it. Yeah. Uh, there were a number of humorous news headlines uh, this year about various religious leaders. I knew there's at least one in North Carolina, one in Israel, who claimed that the COVID-19 pandemic was a result of the legalization of gay marriage. That because uh, yeah. gay marriage yeah. is objectively wrong, and we have angered God by allowing it, but this pandemic therefore must be judgment on us for allowing moral imperfection in our society. Seems like quite a leap. If, I mean, those are the same people who think abortion is wrong, and God hasn't been sending us pandemics because we've been doing abortions since 1973. Well, maybe it's just also because of that. That's fair. I don't know. I am not in uh, God's judgment seat, so I won't say why God is sending us pandemics. <laughs> <laughs> but I think from an outside perspective, saying the pandemic is because of gay marriage looks ludicrous. But when you come from a perspective of gay marriage is actually objectively wrong, in a sense bigger than we can make truth and make decisions for ourselves, then yeah, it makes sense that there would be some repercussions morally for doing that, for making it legal. I mean, even if I thought that, I'd still be like, eh, I don't know about how this lines up with the correlation causation side of things. That's true. Just because there's a plague of locusts one year doesn't mean it, you know, maybe God's sending a plague of locusts on your crops because you were worshiping that idol, or maybe it's just a bad locust season. Yep. <laughs> <laughs> I do want to do a little thought experiment and explore what does it look like if we try to apply this idea of I'm going to enforce my personal opinions onto society about something that isn't a personal or cultural issue. Uh, for example, if, I'm a, if I am a president of the United States or on the Supreme Court and I have very strong opinions about uh, monetary policy, I think that it is morally, maybe not morally wrong, but I think it is a bad idea to allow inflation and that we should keep the same amount of money all the time. Or maybe, you know, you know what, let's say that I do think it is morally wrong to have inflation because, I don't know, inflation... It, de you know, it devalues the money. You know, someone has money and if there's inflation, you're making it less valuable, so you're stealing from them. Right. Or it erodes the hard work and the savings that people have made, and so it is a form of theft by the government because every time they print money, they take value from you. Either way, whether it's inflation, the existence of billionaires, a certain part of tax policy, you can spin many different things, many different ways, where you can make something mundane, like tax policy, which isn't truly mundane, but feels like it, you know, it's not as flashy as sex. Right. You can find a way to make things about morals. Right. And so let's say I have a very strong personal moral conviction about monetary policy in the United States. To what extent am I allowed to make decisions about monetary policy that come from my perspective of morality. Because currently, we make decisions about monetary policy such that our economy will grow and produce things. We want to make decisions that are effective because we have decided that it is morally better to produce more, to be more wealthy, and all of that. Yeah. Uh, or what if, for example, I am part of the Sunrise Movement, 
And I think that global capitalism is destroying the environment and capitalistic growth is inherently amoral, immoral. That is inherently wrong to make profits and make money. Do I have the right no. to go into government and make business illegal? To declare mining illegal? Say if you got into government and then decided, we stole all this land from the Native Americans... All private property and government property in the United States now belongs to the remaining Native Americans, mm -hmm. you know, through whatever, you know, measures to make that happen. But, like, that's a hell of a question right there. What level are you allowed to just have your, your morals dictate that? Yeah. And often, like, I think these thought experiments, even though I think what we as a country have historically and continue to do to Native Americans is atrocious. Absolutely. I don't think I don't think the solution is saying that all land, private and public, is now owned by the remaining Native Americans. Yes. For the mo most main reason uh, of just that, that would cause anarchy. You know, not even because, like, not because I think I should get to own, like, not because I, I believe I have a, you know, enshrined claim to land, but because I think that if we did that, the negatives of the anarchy it would cause would be infinitely worse than whatever moral wrongs it might try to right. Right. If I was president of the United States, I would be pushing to give Badlands National Park back to the Sioux tribes. I think that it is immoral for us to keep holding on to their sacred lands that we gained illegally. But I wouldn't try to give Manhattan back to the Native Americans. Yeah, right? I was going to say, like, New York City. <laughs> and so, like, so, yeah. so how, do I, how do I rationalize and understand this division within myself of how much can I, I feel morally convicted that the land here, at least some of it, certainly belongs to the Native Americans. Am I allowed to just give it back as a leader of the country, even if people I lead disagree with me? I think with this specific uh, scenario we've come up with, you can say if you gave New York back to the Native Americans, I imagine on a certain level, there are Native Americans who, you know, or I think, you know, the preferred term by many of them is actually American Indians. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Uh, for the specific people groups we're talking about, because Native Americans encompasses everyone from South America to the Inuit. Yes. So we're specifically talking about uh, American Indians. Yes, thank you for that. That's a good point. It, I, I, you know, I can imagine there is groups of them who'd be like, what are we going to do with Manhattan? Badlands, it's clear that that is something they currently want. Yes. And we just changed the ownership of Manhattan, it would cause complete unrest and anarchy. But, like, if we just gave them Badlands National Park, oh, one less national park. Not a big deal. I think we fall into the, the issue of we say, you shouldn't make decisions based on morals, well, unless you agree with me. Right. Or unless you, unless you hold morals that everybody else does. Right. Yeah. Or, you know, unless you agree with me or unless you agree with what I think that the absolute morality is, but... And, and that's a really hard thing to, to try and poke apart because on a certain level, it's like, well, of course, of course, if, if someone is doing what you think is moral, you're going to support it. But I think if we have a separation of church and state and we want to kind of democratize morality or at least let people have some semblance of deciding what they think is the right path for their life, mm -hmm. I think we need to, as a society, leave room in the law and in culture for people to make decisions that we think are immoral, which is really, I think that's not a conventional way of thinking about things. No. I would argue that someone who thinks that 
gay marriage is immoral should be willing to let there be room for people to act in their mind as immoral. Yes. And I'm trying to think of an example. I'm trying to, uh, I'm trying to think of an example where I, um, I need to do this too. Because I don't want to just be like, oh yeah, people who don't like gay marriage, I don't like what they're doing. Like, right. I want to try to find an area where I'm doing wrong. Here's an, well, here's an example. I think that due to climate destruction, all those, you know, the costs of raising meat, it is probably immoral for me to be eating beef. Uh, just the amount of devastation yeah. ecologically that, that cattle cause. Oh yeah, meat production is, is I, I think, you know, if you take in the actual production, the waste product of the animals, transportation it's one of the biggest emitters of, of CO2. Absolutely. If we just, if we, if we stopped eating meat, like red meat, if we stopped eating red meat entirely or, you know, phase it out over five years, it would do tremendous things for the environment regardless, you know, that's not even talking about the conditions that these animals are in. Yes. And it's not just carbon dioxide, but, you know, chopping down the Amazon rainforest to make for, to make room for more oh, cows. Yeah. Well, part know? of the calculations that are often put into these is, not just um, CO2 and methane and greenhouse, greenhouse gases produced, but carbon sequestration that has Land been use. reduced. Yeah. And so, you know, it is probably immoral for me to be eating a cheeseburger. I still eat cheeseburgers, right? And, and yeah. I, I would feel, if the government came and told me, you are not legally allowed to eat cheeseburgers, I would probably stop eating cheeseburgers, but I'd feel like the government didn't have the authority to tell me that. You know? Yeah, yeah, I get what you like. If the government said that, right, I would be like, you know, I like, like I'm smiling while I say this. I'd be like, yeah, okay, like sure, that's great. But you know, like I am, I think this will be good for us in the long run. But I'd also be like, this is not like this can't. This is a horrible precedent to set. I, I, I don't think that we should that the government should be allowed to do this. And and the government uh, heavily taxes cigarettes and alcohol because we yeah. decided that they oh, are yeah like making yeah. it although no i think i think i think the government should be able to make uh nicotine or like cigarettes illegal phasing it out of course and having um like addiction therapy and like nicorette and stuff still available um but no just being like yeah we're not going to do cigarettes anymore see like that's i don't think they should be able to ban or like phase out meat i do think they should be able to fan out cigarette right um yeah and and so you know there's, there's clearly some issues here where we are on the wrong side and the issue itself is complex and, and multifaceted. Yeah, it's, it's, it's interesting. And I think there's a level of how immediately bad they look and what we're willing to do, right? So take our meat example, right? Like meat tastes good and it, it, like, it is in the right amount. It is good for you. It's good to have that protein. We don't really see where that meat comes from and like the effects of climate change are not super, it, it's, it, it's amorphous. It's hard to see it. Um, and so that's an issue where most people, even if they think that eating meat is wrong morally or like strategically it's wrong, most people are going to be like, okay, the government shouldn't make meat illegal or they shouldn't make hamburgers illegal, right? Right. And then cigarettes or hard drugs, which are illegal, mm -hmm. fentanyl. Yep. Most people agree, yeah, the government should be able to say cocaine is illegal. And I think you'd get more people to be like, yeah, if the government wanted to phase out cigarettes in the next five years, I would totally support that, right? Mm -hmm. um, but then, like, alcohol, we tried to make it illegal. So, like, didn't it's a work. little bit close. Didn't work. And it's also it's just a little bit closer. But I think something that is right in the middle is wearing masks. Hmm. That is a hot take right now. 
And I think it's similar to wearing seatbelts. Wearing a seatbelt is currently the law, but there were people who pushed back against it when they tried oh, to make the so law. Oh, so much. It hasn't always been the law. And so I think that like seatbelts or masks are kind of right in the middle. Like wearing a mask or wearing a seatbelt, like you can understand how that is how that is useful for public safety, right? Most people will generally agree that like, yeah, like wearing a seatbelt, like of course if I get in a car accident, I'm gonna be less likely to get hurt. Or wearing a mask, there people will have varying opinions, but even a lot of people who think that they shouldn't be required to wear a mask will admit that they're effective. They just don't think they should be, they should legally be allowed to. Right. And so I think masks and seatbelts are right in the middle between, you know, not right, but they're in between cocaine and a hamburger. Yeah. Of that, mo most people agree cocaine should be illegal. Most people agree hamburgers shouldn't be illegal. But we, get, it gets messier when you can kind of see how they're important, but like with masks, you never actually see the benefit of it. You never see the benefit of your mask that you are wearing. It's only on a large scale that we see it and the virus is invisible. And with a seatbelt, you only ever see the benefit of that if you get in a car accident. Right. So maybe it's not about how bad things actually are or how, how useful to public health they are, because I think you might be able to make a convincing argument that at this point, red meat does more damage to public health than cigarettes. Maybe it's not about like objectively how bad to public health they are. It's more about how normalized things are or how you know, much of a part of our like daily lives they are. Right. Well, I think this goes back to the idea of having a, a common civic uh, morality that as a society, we can all agree that fentanyl is wrong and that not wearing a seatbelt is, you know, maybe not morally wrong, but it certainly is going to get you a ticket, right? And that's okay. Yeah. But as a society, or we don't Or drunk have... driving, especially, yes, you know, absolutely. drunk driving, because that affects other people other than yourself. Yeah. So, you know, you're more likely to agree with it. And we all agree that, that drunk driving is wrong. We don't all agree that red meat is wrong, even though we know it can do the same types of damage. And so why is, why is it illegal to not wear a seatbelt, but it is legal to eat red meat? Because that's what we decided, right? I think, yeah. here's an idea for the first, in my experience, bit of merch. It is a long poster <laughs> that is a spectrum of, should the government be able to make this illegal? And on the one side, that's you have murder, it. and on the other side, you have, you know, cheeseburgers. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, like a like a nice spectrum. You can put it up on your wall. To go back to what we started with, I think that not only is Amy Barrett a topical example of this, but uh, an important one, in that she hasn't had the longest career as a judge, so we haven't necessarily been able to see her track record on where she stands on moral issues, but also how she will apply her own moral compass to her role as a judge. And for some people, that is concerning. Absolutely. In that we don't know where she's going to fall on things. And at least in my personal opinion, a lot of the things where I would be concerned about the side she would fall on are things that are important, that I don't know where she would fall on LGBTQ issues. I don't know where she would fall on abortion. Or on the Affordable Care Act that is coming before the Supreme Court in November. It is likely that by uh, the end of October, a month from now, there will be nine justices on the Supreme Court again, and Amy Cohen Barrett will be one of them. And I think that it is important for people, you know, not just the two of us, but I think for society in general to have a good understanding of 
uh, what are the difficulties around making moral choices as a society? How do we decide what's legal and legal, illegal? What's okay and what's not okay for you to take your personal beliefs and put them into the public square? Yeah, especially when I think a lot of contemporary issues, whether they are abortion, sexuality, whether to wear a mask, um, how we're going to do our health care, how we should react to climate change, Almost all of them, when you boil it down, are about whether there is an absolute right answer or whether there is fluctuations inside of morality and how much as a society we should bend to the will of the morality of the people in power or whether regardless of the morals of the people in power, if there should be a democratization of morality and if people should be allowed to pick different paths. Absolutely. And I think... It's not a very nice conclusion for us to have no answer, but we don't have an answer. There is no answer because no. every situation is nu nuanced and unique because I believe that there are things that are purely based on morality that we should still have in law and in culture. But I think that that exact same rationale has been used to cause a lot of pain. Absolutely. And it's a lot easier to say that if I was in power, I would make everyone follow my personal morality rather than exercising some restraint and understanding that I exist in a society that doesn't always agree with me and I need to allow that society to live peacefully even in the areas where I disagree with it. That is the difficult practice for someone who's a citizen in a democracy uh, to, to develop, but it's an important one for democracy. Democracy doesn't, doesn't continue without maintenance, and I think conversations like these are really important. Uh, maintenance on our democracy. Thank you very much for listening to our discussion this week. I'm James. I'm Noah. And this has been In Our Experience. You can catch us next or two Tuesdays from now. It's true. This, the podcasts are released every other Tuesday. Uh, you can hear us talk about uh, a new topic in two weeks from now. Um, I don't think we've settled on what it is yet, have we? No, we have not. We're, we're currently on, uh, on a couple platforms, whatever one you're listening to. We're also on Anchor's uh, platform as well as Spotify. I believe we're on Google Play, hoping to get on Apple Podcasts. It can take some time to get there. I wouldn't be surprised if in the next episode or two, the election will be one of our topics, uh, both the one happening in the United States and elections in general. Yeah, that is certainly coming up. So thank you for listening, and I hope you have a good week. Hey, it's Noah. Uh, just a quick editor's note as I'm going through. Um, I'm editing this on the 6th, the day that it's going to go up, and I just have a few updates. Uh, first of all, our podcast is now on Apple Podcasts. You should be able to find it if you just search for In My Experience, which is pretty cool. Also, we've had our first couple listeners, um, which is somewhat surprising. The first episode got over 20 listens. I know, impressive. But what I'm actually surprised about is... Some of them were from Spain and Germany, so if you're listening from Spain or Germany, uh, thanks. have no clue how you found our podcast, but that's neat. Um, so I really hope that you guys enjoyed the, today's episode. Um, our sound recording setup was a little bit different, so I think we had better sound quality than in the first episode. Thank you so much for listening. I hope that you tune in again. Remember that our podcast comes out every other Tuesday. Thanks.